you would this morning turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 34, excuse me, 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. The title of this chapter, at least in some Bibles, is called Moses' Song. These are some of the last words that he would speak to the children of Israel before he would leave this world. It says, Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. My doctrine shall drop as the rain, my speech shall distill as the dew, as a small rain upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass. Because I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. He says he, meaning God, is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Some weeks ago, we began to look at God as the creator and then we looked at him in his eternal nature and also his self-sufficiency, meaning he needs no help or um, no support from any to exist. He exists of himself. And then a couple of weeks ago, we tried to look at God being all-powerful, also him being all-knowing, and in every place that we would go, we would find the Lord there ahead of us. So we believe in God who is the creator, that he is eternal in his nature, he has always been. There's never been a time there's not been a God. Everything else that we see has been created and many things that we can't see. And he is the creator of all things. But we also find that, um, as we saw, that he has all power. Jesus said that in Matthew 28. All power is given me both in heaven and in earth. He also is, as we often say, everywhere present and nowhere absent. David said that in the 139th Psalm. He said, if I ascend to the heavens, he's there. If I were to make my bed in hell, lo, thou art there. Solomon, when he dedicated the temple in Jerusalem, he said, the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. Uh, he's the one that dwelleth in eternity, the Bible tells us. He's the high and lofty one. But he also has all knowledge. That means there's nothing that occurs that is beyond his knowing. And there's nothing that could occur that God hasn't already uh, considered. In other words, uh, sometimes you maybe look back at your life and say, well, if I had done this instead of taking this path, God already knows how the end of that would have been as well. Uh, God's ability to know, his understanding, the Bible says, is infinite. It means without limit. Uh, sometimes that boggles our minds because our understanding is finite. It's amazing what the human mind can embrace, comprehend, understand, remember, retain. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, if you stop and think about uh, the, <laughs> the memory, if, if you will, that the human brain has, uh, powerful than uh, a lot of the computers that men uh, have, uh, have invented. Um, I don't know that I've ever forgotten <laughs> anything that I've ever known. The problem is, is I don't know where it's stored is a lot of the time, the problem. Uh, sometimes my sister will ask a question about our childhood and I have a very, very, very faint memory of it. And she'll give me a couple more details and I go to the right filing cabinet and I can pull out and begin to tell her in greater detail uh, what it is that she remembers more vaguely than I do. But sometimes I need some help to remember where I've put that. But uh, God is not that way. God and, and even as amazing as our minds are, there's a limit. Uh, my dear great-grandmother, she met the limit of her mind's ability, and we saw it in its decline uh, when it could retain at the end nothing more hardly than uh, remembrance of her earthly father. Um, and so we watched the human mind reach its apex and then began to, to decline. It's just the reality of our being. But that's not the God that we serve. We don't have to be concerned that our God would forget us that he would forget anything about us, that he would uh, not take knowledge of who we are and where we're at. But here in Deuteronomy 32, Moses sets this forth as he's leaving the children of Israel. His death is imminent. It won't be long before God takes him up to Pisgah, to Mount Nebo, where he's able to view into the land of Canaan and see all the land that God would give the children of Israel. And the Bible lets us know that his... Uh, 
eyesight was good, his natural strength was not abated, but yet he died and God buried him. And the Bible says no man knows where his sepulcher is to this day. And so Moses, in full strength of body and sight, he passes away. It was the time determined that the children of Israel would go into the land of Israel, in the, in the land of Canaan. And so it's time for Moses to leave this world. And as he's getting ready to depart, here are some thoughts that he has of God that he thought was important to leave the children of Israel. I would say that some of the last words of God's people are very important words to take heed to. Um, the dying words of men and women, oftentimes, uh, if they're not hindered by uh, medications and such, often uh, bring us to a depth of understanding and reality that we ought to contemplate. Uh, but anyway, here Moses says in verse 4, He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. If God will bless us this morning, I want to look at God's immutability. That means the unchangeableness of God. Also, we want to look at not only um, who God is, but this says what his ways are. And it also talks about his character. He says for his uh, ways are judgment. But then it says he's also a God of truth, but he's without iniquity. He's just and he is right. There are many people in this world that would like to charge God with things that are unjust, the things that are not right, but the Word of God will not allow that. If we're honest with the Word of God and what we see around us, the things that are unjust, the things that are falling apart, the things that are tainted and uh, permeated with sin and corruption, that is not uh, at the feet of God. This verse lets us know that He is a God who is just, He's a God that is right, He's a God of truth, and he's a God that is without iniquity. Those things are foreign to the nature of God. Now the Bible does tell us there's some things that God cannot do. Uh, the Bible lets us know that he cannot lie. Why? Because it goes to, against the very nature of who God is. God in his nature is a God of truth. And because he is a God of truth, he cannot lie. It would go against uh, the very character and nature of God. It is not within his being to be dishonest. I'm grateful to know that about God. That uh, when uh, the Lord Jesus Christ says uh, in John chapter 14, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He says, uh, uh, he goes on to let us know about the mansions that are prepared. He said, if it were not so... I would have told you, he said, if this wasn't true, I would have made you aware. Uh, but obviously it was the truth and it can be relied upon because God cannot lie. Colossians lets us know in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before the world began. So here we find that Paul lets us know that you and I have a hope of eternal life. Why do we have this hope? Why can we stand in hope of eternal life? Because God who cannot lie promised before the world began to make sure that you and I would be delivered no matter how corrupt we would become while we live in this world. So he says, he is the rock. <laughs> of all ways to describe God, he starts out, he says, he is the rock, capital R. Now you're going to find Moses in this chapter refer to God at least seven times as the rock, capital R. We'll find that David uses that uh, term uh, to describe God also. Isaiah does. We find it all over the Word of God, in the New Testament and in the Old alike. When I think of a rock, uh, a lot of times it's not something that we would consider and greatly esteem. But if you really stand back and consider what it is, it presents the idea of permanence, reliability, something that's constant, something that does not change, uh, something that you can rely upon. That's what David says in Psalm 61 when he says, From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. What is he saying there? He says, I need a foundation and I need stability under my life that is higher and exalted above uh, where I am in this present moment. He was in a veil of tears and sorrow and he recognized he needed to be lifted up but he didn't want to go just anywhere. He says, from the ends of the earth will I cry unto thee. He says, when my heart is overwhelmed, when trouble has uh, overtaken my life, he says, you lead me to the rock that is higher than I. He says, for thou hast been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust in the covert of thy wings. Here David says in his experience, when I, I find the floods of discouragement overwhelming my life, I'll cry to you and I'll trust you to lead me to the rock that is higher than I and I'll dwell in the tabernacle of the most high and he says and I will trust in the covert of thy wings Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 32 beginning in verse 1 he says behold 
A king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. You may be asking, well, who, what is, who is this king? Well, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, who are these princes? My opinion of that is that's the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Anyway, he says, behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. Then he says this in verse 2, and a man... A man shall be as a hiding place from the wind, as a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Notice what he says. There is a man, he says, not many men, but there is one man. He says, it's also the same man who is the king who reigns in righteousness. He says, there shall be a man who will be as a hiding place from the wind. Being from West Texas, uh, I understand what it is to be in windy areas. I grew up on the plains of West Texas where there wasn't much barrier from wind. As you would drive down Interstate 20 from time to time, as you would pass various farms and ranches, you would see on one side of a home, a row of cedar trees had been planted there simply for a windbreak. Uh, they weren't there for shade. They were only there to provide a windbreak to that uh, home. Why? Because otherwise, during a, a windstorm, that house would be covered over in dust. They needed a, a windbreak. Here the Bible says uh, the Lord Jesus Christ would be a hiding place for you and I uh, from the wind. Living in Florida as we do, we understand that from uh, the month of June till about November, there's uh, hurricanes we have to be concerned about and watch out for them. Why? Because the wind that bring, uh, comes in with them uh, could damage our property and destroy our lives. Well, here the word of God says the Lord Jesus Christ is for you and I a hiding place from the wind, but also a covert from the tempest. Thank God in the storms of this life that uh, uh, come against us sometimes completely uh, unexpected. We have the Lord Jesus Christ out of cover over us. I'm grateful that in the storms that happen uh, on a regular basis here in Florida that we're blessed with a fine home uh, to cover over us and to uh, uh, protect us from the elements of this world. But there are storms that invade my life and yours that no earthly house could ever uh, cover you from. But the Lord Jesus Christ can and he does. So here he says he's a hiding place uh, from the wind but he's also a cover from the tempest. He's also has rivers of water in a dry place. When you get into a place of drought, a place of want, a place of need, the Lord Jesus Christ is there to provide rivers of water as in a dry place. And then he says, finally, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. There are places in this nation and across the world, but in this nation in particular, that the only shade you would find would be from a great rock. You can go out to the western portion of our nation and to some of the uh, national parks uh, of our country and the only shade you would find there would be from massive rocks that are there. There's no trees. There's nothing else to cover you. And in the heat of the sun, the only thing that you could find uh, to give you shade would be some great rock. Well, in this world, there is the sun of affliction and trouble and all that that bears down upon us uh, uh, from the time, uh, time to time. But thankfully, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have one uh, that we can uh, hide behind and find his shadow cast upon us and uh, keep us cool in the weariness of this life. So again, he says, he is the rock. Again, this idea once again gives the idea of permanence, reliability, uh, constants. The Bible teaches from uh, cover to cover the immutability of God, meaning that God does not change. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, God says, For I am the Lord. And here's why the immutability of God is vital uh, to understand and comprehend and embrace for the child of God. God not being able to change <laughs> means everything to me. This, again, is not some dry theology. This is uh, very real, at least for me. And here's a verse that tells so. He says, for I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, because I am the Lord and I do not change, he says, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. So that tells me that the reverse would be this, that if God could change, then you and I would be consumed. But the fact that God cannot change you and I can rely upon the reality that we will never be consumed uh, by Satan, by sin, or even the grave itself. You and I will never face the depths of the fires of hell uh, because God cannot change. He says, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. 
We find in the book of Numbers chapter 23, there's a man by the name of Balaam who is a prophet of God. Not a very faithful prophet, but he speaks some beautiful things about God. And in chapter 23, verse 19 of the book of Numbers, he says this, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Now the word repent there just simply means uh, uh, make a turn or a change. God's not like you and I. See, sometimes we make mistakes. Sometimes we do wrong. Uh, there's times that I have to turn about uh, and go a different direction. Uh, there's times in my uh, experience of trying to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ that I do wrong, that I sin uh, before His sight. And I have to confess that uh, and hopefully turn away uh, from that which I'm doing wrong, especially if I expect and desire uh, to see His continued blessings in my life. But also just on a daily basis of natural life, uh, there's a lot of times that I've got to make changes. Uh, there's times that I make plans that I have to alter. Uh, there's things that I've determined to do that I have to adjust. Uh, there's things that I have set forth in life that I uh, wanted to achieve that obviously are just not going to happen. And I've got to uh, change my uh, passion for those things, change my ideas about those things. I'm in an ever-changing world, and I'm an ever-changing person in some ways. <laughs> Um, in some ways, I'm the same as I've always been. But here he says, God's not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Here he's just letting us know that what God has said, it can be relied upon. That what God has promised is not going to be altered. What God has decreed is not going to be changed. You know, in the Old Testament, there's a number of times that kings made the decrees that either had to be fulfilled or had to be altered. Like, for instance, in the case of Daniel, and the king had made a decree that the only prayer that could be made was a prayer to his name. What's happened here, you have some wicked uh, princes and governors in the land of Babylon that the only way they can bring down Daniel, who is the preferred uh, president or uh, governor, if you will, in the sight of the king. And they want him removed out of his place. And they said, you know, the only way we can get him is concerning his God. He's such a man of integrity that the only way that we can catch him is in a manner of worship. And so they go and they trick the king to make a decree, make a law, that the only prayer that can be offered is in his name. Only pray to him. Well, you know what Daniel does? Like he always did. Three times a day, he goes up to his room, bows down upon his knees, looks out his window towards Jerusalem to the house of God, and he makes his prayer to God. Now, he doesn't get a billboard. He doesn't go out and get a, a poster board and write on it, I have a right to pray and uh, staple it to his stick and, and march around in front of the king and protest. He doesn't do that. He doesn't blab out loud, I'm going for prayer time. He just simply continued doing what he'd always done. He didn't make an ado about it. He just went and did as he always did. Uh, he didn't try to deny who he was. He didn't try to hide what he was doing. But he also did not make gr uh, grand announcements about how he was going to dishonor the king. He just continued as he always had. And I uh, would encourage us that if the day comes that the authorities in this land pronounce against us the ability or the right to worship the way that we do, that we would just always continue doing what we've always done. That doesn't mean that we have to blare it out to all the world, but at the same time, we don't have to hide it away. We just simply do as we always have. So he goes up and he prays. Well, of course, the king has made a decree. And in the land of Babylon, once that's happened, it's set. It can't be altered. Well, what was the decree? He has to be thrown into a den of lions. And so that's where he goes, to the den of lions. The king, what did he want to do? He wanted to circumvent the law. He wanted to change it. You know what's happened here? The king realized, I've made a mistake. I could not foresee where the law, this decree I've made, was going to lead me. I didn't understand all the repercussions of what I've done. You know, Je Jehovah's never had to say that. Not one time has God had to say, well, I just didn't see how that was going to work out. I have to say that all the time. Uh, everything that I set my mind or hands to, I have to do something in a way of correction. Uh, everything that I've ever touched, everything that I've tried to build, it's either incomplete or there's mistakes in it. 
behind me here, there's trim work around this baptistry. Most of you may not know where the mistakes are. I can sit down there every Sunday, and I know two glaring mistakes. I considered this for probably three years before we actually built it, Brother George and I. I mean, I sat down, I drew it out, I thought it up, I thought about how to do this, and thought and thought and thought about it. Brother Eddie and I, we thought and thought and thought about this pulpit that I'm standing behind. We took measurement after measurement. We were on the phone many times. Just It still ended up shorter than the old one. Why? Because somehow we both messed up. Why? We're not God. We make mistakes. We, we don't think through everything. As much as we may attempt to, we don't. And here the king, he's made a decree not having thought through the consequences. That's not the God that we serve. The God we serve, he can see all things and he knows exactly how it's all going to turn out. So God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken and shall it not, and not make it good? Obviously he will. In the book of James, James says there's every good gift. And every perfect, that means complete gift, is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, notice with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Right now, the air conditioning system on this side of the building is shut down. Uh, there's a motor right now that's being uh, worked on by uh, uplifting air. And one of the things about that motor is a variable speed motor. In other words, it has multiple speeds that it can run at. Um, say, so, well, what, well, God is not variable. <laughs> In other words, with God, it's, he's the same. You can, be, you can always rely on him to be consistent. Uh, he's, there's no variableness with him. Neither shadow of turning. That means not even a glimpse, not even a slight chance of God turning from who he is. Now, the Bible does record for us that from time to time, God has repented of some things, meaning God has turned. Now, God was not cut on unaware. God knew what he was going to do. For instance, in the days of the children of Israel, when they worshipped around the golden calf, God was going to destroy them. The Psalms let us know that he would have destroyed them had not Moses, his servant, stood in the breach. So it tells us in Exodus that God repented of the evil which he thought to do. What does that mean? Wait a minute, God repented? That means God had to convert from something that was wrong to something that's right? That's not what that means. Repent there just simply means make a turn. That doesn't mean he turns from what was wrong to what is right. He changed from what was right to what was right. Either result would have been right. If God had destroyed the Israelites, that would have been right. If God uh, saved the Israelites, that was still right. So the evil that he thought to do there does not mean sinfulness. The word evil there means affliction or judgment. And so God changed his mind about the judgment that he was going to perform. It's a beautiful picture of Christ, our intercessor, stepping in for us. Here Moses, uh, God's servant, stood in the breach. He was an intercessor for the children of Israel. And God did not destroy the Israelites as he intended to do. Moses stood before God and uh, pleaded with God and interceded, and God turned from doing that which he intended to do, which was destroy the children of Israel, and said, spare them. But in the nature of God, of who he is, there's not even a shadow of turning. You never have to worry about, will God choose to no longer be a gracious God? Will God all of a sudden choose to no longer be a long-suffering God? Will God choose to no longer be a just God? Well, those things are permanent. Those things are always to be relied upon. They'll never alter or change. Now, the Bible says that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Why? Prayer does affect things in heaven. There are times that God does move based upon the prayer of a saint of God. And so we do need to understand that there are things that we uh, can make happen. And I don't want to sound flippant about that. But understand that when you are dedicated and fervent and faithful in prayer and walk before God in righteousness, that there are things that your prayer life can do to alter events in this world. Uh, that's a reality and we see it all over the Word of God. But that doesn't mean that you've changed the nature of who God is. God will never do anything contrary to His nature. So again, he says, I am the Lord. I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. He is the rock. Very quickly in Hebrews chapter 6, Paul says this. 
Verse 17, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, that's you, the immutability of his counsel. That means that the promises of God, the thoughts of God, the counsel of God regarding salvation. He says, God wants to show you more abundantly how unchangeable his counsel of redemption is. That's what Paul has here essentially said. God wants you to know abundantly, not just somewhat understand it. He wants you to have abundant understanding that you, the heir of promise, are contained in a council that is immutable, meaning completely unchangeable. And that council, of course, is redemption itself. So he says, wherein God will more abundantly show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. So God makes confirmation through a promise uh, telling us that the counsel of redemption that began in eternity past is completely unchangeable. That's what here Paul is declaring to you and I. He says that by two immutable, two unchangeable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation. Well, what are these two immutable things? I believe they're contained right there in the text that we read in verse 17. Number one, the immutability of his counsel, meaning that he cannot change uh, the counsel of his own mind. And secondly, he's confirmed it by an oath. He's made a promise. And that by these two things, his counsel and his promise, you and I can have a strong comfort or strong consolation. He says that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Which hope, he says, we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Talking about entering into heaven itself. He says, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus. So the hope that we have as an anchor of our soul, he says, in this anchor, where is it at? In heaven itself, where Jesus also is. And that's all based upon two immutable things that God's counsel does not change, and he's made a promise. Again, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began. So here Paul lets us know that there are some things about God we can rely upon that never can change. And because of that, we can have a strong, I love that, Strong consolation, not just some consolation, but we have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. He says again, he is the rock. His work is perfect. His work is perfect. I've already mentioned just one element of something I've done here behind me. It's not perfect. Um, I'm not quite pleased. I'm not going to take it all back down and redo it. I can live with it. And there's a lot of things at my house that are not perfect. They're not complete. In fact, as I was thinking about this last night, I literally went through every room of our home. Every room of our home has been touched by me at some point in some way of remodel. And not one room is complete. <laughs> and not one room is certainly perfect, meaning done to perfection in the sense that there's not something wrong with it. Now, you may walk in, and from your vantage point, it may look complete. There's, there's places that uh, we got in a hurry. We were at the end of time, and our lease was coming up, and we had to get moved into the house. Sister Linda was there. She caulked, and she painted. But there were areas where we knew there would be open walls, and she went through and marked every wall down on a sheet of paper for me to let me know where she hadn't painted the caulk. I know where the, I've lost that sheet of paper, but I know where the walls are now because all I've got to do is look down, and I see yellow caulk. I've never, after almost eight years, gone back and painted those spots. That's in several rooms. Again, every room of that house, there's something left undone. I'm, a much, I'm much like my dad's father. Uh, there was not a, ever a project he ever completed. Uh, I guess I always want to have something to do. I don't know. But anyway, um, but that's not God. And thank God that, you know, Paul said this in Philippians chapter 1. He that hath begun a good work in you. Be grateful that God's not like me. God began a good work in you, and he will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. That's talking about to the second coming of Jesus. So God, who has begun a good work in you, he's going to make sure it comes to perfect completion. If, if I had to start a work, just know it's probably never going to get done. Uh, 
it's just not. It's just the reality of my life. And so um, I know the Bible says that the end of a thing is better than the beginning. I know it says that. And I, I, one of these days I might experience what it says uh, at my own hands. We'll see. But anyway, I also know that if I, even if I finish, it'll be time to start back over. But anyway, um, he is the rock. His work is perfect. That means it's without any fault. It's without any imperfect. You won't find any fault in the work of God. When he made the world itself, God saw, verse, Genesis 1, verse 31, God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So when God saw everything that he had made. Now God is, there's things that I have made and I step back and I'll say, that's, that's good. What I'm really saying is, that's good enough. Um, it's good enough. That's not how God is, though. God's standard and my standard are two different standards. Uh, I've worked with Brother Eddie, and, and I'll say, it's, he and I, we built a bookcase uh, for Lydia. And he was much more tedious and patient, uh, more patient with the tedious part than I was. I'm like, Brother Eddie, just slap that together, let's go. Uh, I'm ready to get it done. See, I'm not a finished carpenter. <laughs> I'm more into framing carpentry. Let the caulker get it later is always my motto. Uh, I'm not too concerned. That's not the standard of God. God's standard and my standard are very different. Isaiah 55, I believe it is, tells us this. That God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And our ways are not God's ways. He lets us know that as high as the heaven is from the earth, so are God's thoughts and his ways versus ours. So what I would call very good and what God would call very good, those are two different standards. When God made the world and he stepped back and God can see it all, he can see down to the core of the earth. He can see every star in the sky, every fish in the sea, every bird in the air, every tree that was growing upon the earth, every blade of grass, every flower blooming, every bug that was crawling, uh, everything in all creation. He could see everything of it. There was not one aspect, uh, not one cell that he had created that was not exposed to the eye of God. And think about that. Everything he had done throughout the entire universe. I mean, just in Hillsborough County alone, that's a lot to look after, is it not? But God could see the entire creation. And what does he pronounce? He says, it is very good. God was perfectly satisfied with what he had made. He is the rock. His work is perfect. There's a problem though, and it's not with God. In Genesis 2, 3, excuse me, Genesis 3, something happens. Man mars the creation of God. So now when you look out at creation and limbs are out in the yard again, weeds are in the flower beds again. Thorns and thistles and briars are in your way. That's not God's fault. That's not how God had designed it. That's not how he intended it. That's the fault of Adam and passed down to us. When you see unjust things happening in this world, when judges who are appointed for righteousness instead approve wickedness, that is not how God's designed it. That's not how God intends it. And God does not approve of it. And God is not a part of it. Uh, none of those things that uh, wicked men would advance or do and try to blame at the feet of God. God is not the author of it and God is not to blame for it. One of the most atrocious doctrines that I can ever contemplate is trying to blame God with the corruption of the carnality and wickedness of this fallen world. That is not the fault of God. And anybody who would like to charge him with such, I believe is guilty of blasphemy against God himself. Uh, I cannot stand those uh, that would do such a thing to charge God with wickedness. That is just not the God whom we serve. <laughs> That's just not who he is at all. In fact, what does he go on to say in this verse? He says, he is the rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity. Just and right is he. His work, though, is a perfect and complete work. When he saw it, it was not just good, but very good. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon says this in chapter 3, verse 14. He says, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it. 
nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it that men should fear before him. You and I are creatures made by God. Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 2. But when he's talking there about the creation of God, he's talking about something outside of this clay or this body before you. He lets us know that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. He's not talking about my body there. This body that stands before you, I believe, was brought here by the help of God, by the joining together of my father and mother. And I realize that that all derives from the original creation of Adam and then the making of Eve. But if you'll notice, what does God say in Genesis 1? He said, let us make man in our image. And so Adam was formed of the dust of the earth. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. But when Adam and Eve have their first child, it doesn't say that that child was made in the image of God. That child was made in the image of Adam, because the image of Adam had changed. It's marred now. It's different than what it was from the day of his creation after the fall. Now it's marred with carnality and sin. That's just the reality. But Paul says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. He would let us know in the, to the church of Corinth, he says that you and I, we are new creatures. Behold, all things are new. So what is he talking about there? He's talking about the inner man. He's talking about the new birth. He's talking about regeneration. So when I look at you or you look at me, and we know that we've been made by God, but yet we've been marred by Adam, we need to always make that distinction. That this outward body that's decaying, that this outward body that Paul says is perishing, that's not the fault of God. And God will take care of it. God will fix it. God will make it right. At the resurrection at the last day, even these bodies shall be in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here we are, the workmanship of the Lord Jesus. And that workmanship is perfect. The workmanship of the new birth in the child of God is a perfect work. The new birth, the, the part of you that's been born again is completely and totally devoted to God. That part of you... Uh, its affection cannot be altered and moved or placed anywhere else. That part of you can only focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and can only love Him, can only adore Him, can only magnify Him. And so if there's a part of you that's distracted from Him and adoring something else in your passion, that's not driven by the new creature that's within you. That's driven by the old nature. And it's very easy to detect. But the part that Jesus is doing... Again, he that hath begun a good work and you shall perform it in the day of Jesus Christ. Just know it is a perfect work. We just don't see its completion yet, but we will. So everything that God does, again, he says, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it that men should fear before him. That is true. Even though right now I don't see the full reality of it, even in my own uh, human flesh. So he is the rock, his work is perfect, and all his ways are judgment. Now, that word judgment there means a pronounced verdict. You know, in, in Genesis 18, God is getting ready to send two angels to Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy those wicked cities. And then God has a conversation with himself. He says, shall I, not, shall I hide this thing? that I shall do from, from Abraham. And so God determines to tell Abraham about it, and he does. And when Abraham hears, he's got a nephew over there that he's concerned about. And so that's where he begins that conversation with God. Well, peradventure, perhaps, if there were 50 righteous in the city, would you spare the city for 50 righteous? And God says, yes, for 50 I would spare it. And then, you know, Abraham gets to thinking about it. He says, I don't know that he could find 50 over there. Well, what about 45 and then 40, 30, 20, and finally 10? God says, if there were ten, I would spare it. Well, God didn't spare it. That tells me there weren't ten righteous in those cities. 
Um, but you know what uh, Abraham says to God in the midst of all that conversation? He says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? <laughs> shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Well, that's a good question. I think it's a question that deserves to be contemplated. And it's a question that we need to answer. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? According to this verse, Moses says that he does do what is right. He is the rock, his work is perfect, all his ways are judgment, a God of truth, and without iniquity, just and right is he. So here he is, a God of judgment. For all, notice again what he says, for all his ways are judgment. You want to know the ways of God? He's a God who is a God of judgment. We don't hear this anymore, hardly. In fact, I haven't heard it in a number of years. Back in the 90s and even moving into the early 2000s when a politician would stumble morally. And that politician clearly before their stumble didn't care the first thing about God. And all of a sudden stumbles, then you'd have other politicians with that same party uh, get on television and start to quote Matthew chapter 7, judge not that you be not judged. I'd always like to ask them, would you quote the rest of that please? Uh, keep on quoting if you would. They don't know the rest of it. Why? Because it's not convenient for the purpose. You don't hear that anymore. You know why? Because so few in this nation care about morality to start with. And so they don't get on television anymore and try to justify themselves or try to even uh, uh, pull on the heartstrings of Christian Americans because so few these days identify as such. So they don't have to worry about that anymore. But there was a time in our nation not so long ago that you would hear uh, politicians and news commentary individuals get up on television and basically berate us for making any kind of judgment. And they would try to let us know that that's just not how God is. God's not that way. Well, according to Moses, that's exactly how God is. And according to what the Lord Jesus Christ taught, that's how we're supposed to be. And the Apostle Paul says, prove all things. That means judge all things. Make a verdict about all things. And he says, and hold fast that which is good. Well, how can I do that unless I'm making a judgment? Now, a judgment doesn't mean that I'm trying to be harsh or critical or, or cruel. That's not the point. Uh, the point is, as I'm trying to discern, is this right or is it wrong? Is it something I'm to embrace or something I'm to avoid? Is it something that I am to uh, admonish or something that I'm to encourage? That's what I'm trying to do. I'm not standing there as though I'm some, some moral arbiter uh, telling the world uh, right from wrong as though I'm God himself. But God has that right. He is the moral governor. He's the judge of all the earth. For all his ways are judgment. God is constantly making judgment. Now then, apply that to your life every day. Think about it. That's a little fearful, is it not? And maybe a lot fearful. That means every thought that passes through my head, God's making a judgment about it. Every single thought I'm thinking, God is passing judgment on it. It's either passing as good or as wicked. There's no gray area with God. It's black and white. There's some areas of morality in this world that I'm, I don't have clarity on. That's not the case with God. God knows every situation black and white. Every single one. And he makes a judgment call on them all. He's the judge of all the earth. And this is the case. He always makes the right call. I have judged matters and I've been right. And I have judged matters and I've been altogether wrong. <laughs> I've been in both camps. And there's some judgments that I made that the jury's still out. And I'm still waiting to see whether I'm right or wrong about them. Uh, but this thing, I know when God makes a judgment, I can trust the reliability of the, the, the reality that it is right, that it's always going to be the correct judgment. So when he judges me and brings uh, affliction into my life for the wrong that I've done, I have no right to question him about that. Why? Because he's made a judgment against his own morality, and he knows whether I've been holy or whether I've been sinful. So every thought I think, God makes a judgment on. Every word I say, he makes a judgment on. Every affection that I have in my heart, he makes a judgment about. Every action of my hands and my feet, he makes a judgment upon. That's scary. <laughs> that's fearful. But that's why Paul says that everything is naked and open with him with whom we have to do. There's nothing that's hidden from his sight. The Old Testament a number of times lets us know that he trieth the reins, meaning he tries to, he understands the motivation even 
behind the things that we do. I could do something for you, and I could probably convince you that I'm doing it for you, when in reality, I may be doing it for myself. God knows that. When I'm doing something in the service of God, he knows whether it's really in the service of God or in the service of myself. All those things he's aware of. In Daniel chapter 4, after King Nebuchadnezzar had been brought down low and lifted up his eyes, his understanding was restored to him. He made that great proclamation about the sovereignty of God in the very last verse of chapter 4. Here's what Nebuchadnezzar says. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. You know what he came to the understanding of? Exactly what Moses tells us here in Deuteronomy chapter 34. He understood that God is a God of judgment. But also, he also understood that he's a God of truth and without iniquity, and he's just and he's right. He understood that. He said, those who walk in pride, God is able to abase, and he's right to do so. So here this man, Nebuchadnezzar, who walked in his own arrogance and pride, and God brought down, he got the lesson. He understood what God was conveying to him when he sent him out as a beast in the field for seven years. He comprehended exactly the message that God was passing through. Would to God that you and I would as well. Now he says, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. A God of truth. In our day and time, truth, much like it was in the days of Pilate, when he said to Jesus Christ, what is truth? You know what he's saying? Who, who cares? That's what he's essentially saying. He said, I don't care uh, what you say truth is. Now, Jesus said in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The, that means the only. He didn't say a, he says the. That's very exclusive. In fact, John 14, 6 is one of the most offensive verses in all the Bible. You know why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ excluded any other way to heaven any other uh, theories of uh, redemption uh, from iniquity, <laughs> all that he dispelled in that one verse. And so if you don't uh, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's a very offensive verse. But anyway, um, he's a God of truth. And even though Pilate says, what is truth? What does it matter? Who cares? <laughs> it mattered greatly. And it still matters greatly. And I realize that we live in a culture and a time where truth seems to be relative. According to the moral acceptance or immoral acceptance of a culture at any given time. Right now, things that are being received by a multitude, I don't know if it's the majority yet in our nation, I doubt that it is. Uh, you know, they talk about the silent majority, and I hope they're right that the majority is still being silent. I wish they'd speak up. Uh, but uh, I, I hope that the most of America does not embrace a lot of the ungodly, carnal, immoral things going on in our culture today. Now, Hollywood and the media and such would uh, make you think that this is commonplace, common thinking embraced by the masses. I don't think that it is yet. But the problem is, is with each passing generation, more and more are embracing these things. Why? Because we don't have enough folks standing up and just declaring what the Word of God says and what God's judgments are about these things. He's a God of truth. And without iniquity, just and right is He. Truth never falters. Truth never changes. Truth is not something that is one thing today and another thing tomorrow. Uh, the thing about truth is it's always been uh, the same, uh, whether you're talking about Genesis chapter 1 or the present day in which we live. Uh, the morality of God and, and His reality of truth has never altered one little bit. And thank God that's the way that it is. I don't have to guess. Most of you know that I spent a number of years in high school, out of high school, beyond, even while I was in Illinois, pastoring, umpiring baseball games. I had a rule book. And that rule book was the final arbiter of any question. And the coaches had the same rule book. The other umpires, same rule book. The feller or woman, whoever it was, up there operating the scoreboard, 
they had the same rule book. And for the most part, it was hard to misinterpret the rules. I remember one time I was umpiring a ball game. My great uncle was the coach. And I was at first base umpiring, and there was a young man, made it to first base, kneeled down, called timeout, was acting like he was tying his shoe. I saw what he was doing. Well, my uncle was uh, distracted as first base coach, talking to somebody over there against the fence. And all of a sudden, that kid got up and took off to second base, and I told him to go back to first base. The time was called. Well, my uncle didn't see all that was happening, and he got very, very upset with me. And to the point, he was telling me what I would do. And I told him if he didn't hush in a moment, I was going to throw him out of the game. And so he finally got quiet. Now, my uncle, my dad worked with him. His name was Mickey, a great guy, but not somebody you wanted mad at you. <laughs> I was the boss out there on that field, you see, because I was the umpire. He was a coach. I had the authority to throw him out of that game. But we were going to my great-grandmother's house for supper after that game. And over there, I wasn't the authority. <laughs> I was very – he knew the rules. <laughs> But the rules didn't matter over where we were going. And so I was very nervous when we were getting to her house. And thank God he had time to consider it because when he walked in the door, he come up and shook my hand. He said, you made the right call. I'm sorry. And he went on and ate a supper. I was ever so grateful. But when it comes to God's rules, they don't stop at the fence of a little league field. They extend throughout all the universe. They go to the White House. They apply at the Capitol building. They apply to Tallahassee, whether you're in Bartow at the courthouse there or uh, Tampa. I don't care where you're at, whether it's a school principal's office, whether it's your employer, whether it's your parents, whether it's your children. I don't care where you're at. The rule book for God doesn't alter. It doesn't change why he's a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Think about that for a moment. Here comes the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ in the world. It says, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory, as, the only, as of the only begotten of the Father, full. I love that. Full of grace and truth. Later in this same chapter, he says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now, is he saying the law was not true? No. The law actually was given by the Lord Jesus Christ through God to Moses. But what he's letting us know here is grace and truth that uh, lets us know that we have been vindicated through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's been introduced into the world by the Lord Jesus Himself. The law that points out sin and our failures and where we've fallen short, that's been pointed out through the law of Moses. But grace and truth that vindicates the child of God as being holy and righteous in God's sight, that didn't come through any law that man uh, spoke. That came by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when He was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. That's where that reality came from was in the coming of the Lord Jesus. So he's a God of truth and without iniquity. You know, in Job chapter 34, there's, a, there's um, four main individuals in that story. Job, his three friends, and I can't think of their names all of a sudden, and then a young man named Elihu. Elihu is quiet through most of the book of Job. He lets those other three men talk, and Job talk, and they talk, and they just talk and talk and talk, and nothing's accomplished except Job is aggravated, and these men are in indignation at the unrighteousness that Job is hiding somewhere in his life. Finally, Elihu, who's observed this whole scene, sees it all pretty accurately. He sees three men who are charging Job and God unrighteously, and also Job who's charging God. And so in Job chapter 34, Elihu says this, verse 10, he says, Therefore hearken unto me, ye men of understanding, even though they were not understanding anything that was going on right then. He says, Therefore hearken unto me, ye men of understanding, far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should commit iniquity. See, here's Job in the midst of all that. He just thinks God is doing him wrong. And 
Now, I don't know if Job would have gotten to that point without those three men aggravating him, but uh, sometimes when somebody's aggravating you, you'll say things that you wouldn't otherwise say, and you'll think things sometimes you wouldn't think. But either way, Job has gotten to a point that he thinks himself so righteous that any kind of uh, affliction or trouble that's going on in his life, God must be unjust in allowing it. That's really Job's greatest crime uh, throughout the book of Job. He becomes self-righteous. And in that, he brings God down and he lifts himself up. And so Elihu, he's observing this. And so he lets Job know very clearly that God does not do wickedness. And the Almighty, he does not commit iniquity. He's a God of truth. Without iniquity, just and right is he. Paul says this in Hebrews chapter 7. For such a high priest became us. That word became such a high priest adorns us that we have who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Now, in some ways, that verse, if you don't understand it in context and understand all about Jesus, could be a little discouraging. I mean, he's the rock. I mean, that's an impenetrable place, is it not? But yet, I find in the life of Moses, where God says, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll put you in the side of the rock. I find again where David said in Psalm 61, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. He's not impenetrable, and we should never think such. So when here Paul says that such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, don't think by that that he's unapproachable by you. That's not the point that the Apostle Paul is driving at. The point that he is making clear, he's not like the priest Aaron nor his sons. He's not like the Levites. He's different than they were. They were sinful men. They did wrong. They got to a point that the ungodliness that they were promoting as worship was so horrible uh, that God would remove them uh, out of the land. And here he's making a contradiction. He's making a separation. He's showing a comparison, if you will, of those priests and the Lord Jesus Christ. But in that, he lets us know that the high priest that we had that's made higher than the heavens, he's holy, harmless, he's undefiled, and he's separate from sinners. But yet he came and he dwelt with us. He's separate in the sense that even while he was here, he was never sullied by sin. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 21, when it lets us know, he that knew no sin was made to be sin for us. That doesn't mean that he became a sinner. He became the sin bearer, but he was not made a sinner. He bore our sins and bore them to the uttermost. But he never knew sin himself. He never knew what it was to say the wrong thing, to think the wrong thing, to feel the wrong thing. To do the wrong thing or go to the wrong place. Never once in all of his earthly experience. You know what? There's coming a day you're going to know that as well. There's coming a time you're going to know what it is to never think wrong, say wrong, or do wrong. That day's coming. It's just not here yet. So he's holy. He's harmless. He's undefiled. He's separate from sinners. There's a distinction. And as familiar as I want to be with Christ and Christ with me, this distinction needs to always be there. So long as time goes on and we're in this earthly clay, there needs to be this separation. That even though sinners approach to him, even though he vouches for sinners, even though he intercedes for sinners, I need to know that he's still separate from sinners. That sin does not sully him. I need to know that about him. I need to know that no matter how black and dark my life becomes, and he uh, blots that out, that in the blotting of that out, none of the stain of that sin ever comes upon the precious garments of the Lord Jesus Christ. That will never occur. He'll always be holy. He'll always be harmless. He'll always be undefiled. And he'll always be separate from sinners. And thank God he's been made higher than the heavens. He is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity just and right is he I close with this in 1 Peter chapter 2 Paul excuse me Peter says this of the Lord Jesus Christ who did no sin neither was guile found in his mouth who when reviled reviled not again when he suffered he threatened not but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously 
who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. All that because here he was, one who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. The reality that he's a God of truth and without iniquity, that he is just, that he is right, should not provoke in us a fear of him that he cannot be approached to. But what it should do is cause us to return to the shepherd and the bishop of our souls in a way of righteousness, a way that walks in peace, a way that walks in holiness. That's what that ought to stir within us. So again, Moses says he is the rock. You can count on him to always be the same. He is the rock. His work is perfect. What he does is always exactly the right way. I may not understand it, but I don't need to. I just need to know that what he does is perfect. All his ways are judgment. He judges every issue that goes on in this world. And even when you feel to be judged wrong, don't worry. God knows the truth. He's a God of righteousness, a God of truth. He's just, he's right, he's without iniquity. Those are things, attributes of God. Some of those we will experience ourselves one day. We will have those attributes as well. May God bless you as our prayer.